I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Livewire is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you can call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Well, hey there, everybody. Welcome to Livewire. I'm Luke Burbank. How is it going? Uh, we have a really interesting show for you this week, I think. Um, it's kind of a combo platter. Because you know how it is. Sometimes you're at the restaurant and you cannot make up your mind and everybody else is ordering and you can just feel the pressure building because the waiter is getting closer and closer to you. And then it's like five-second countdown And all of a sudden you see something else on the menu that now is in the mix in terms of what you're considering. It's like the most pressure that we feel in adult life. I don't understand why that is. Uh, Maybe it's because sometimes it's hard to make up your mind when you got a few different things that seem interesting. Um, And so we don't want to make you choose just one interesting thing this hour. Uh, So we're going to give you a variety of things. Uh, In fact, we're going to talk about all kinds of stuff, including tough childhoods and and frankly, tough adulthoods, and whether or not there actually is a light at the end of the tunnel. Um, we're also going to hear some stand-up comedy on the topic of therapy. Uh, what is less ideal, to have a therapist who is younger than you or to have a therapist who <laughs> is quoting the Grateful Dead? Um, and speaking of food, uh, we're going to talk about how we eat as a country and why we eat the things we eat uh, and how brunch Brunch might save us all. Uh, So that is the plan for this episode of Livewire. Let's start things out at the Jack London Review in Portland. Uh, That's where we got together recently for our annual Fancy Pants fundraiser show. Um, And we were very lucky because we got writer Therese Marie Myatt to stop by. Uh, She has this new memoir out. It's getting all kinds of attention and acclaim. uh, And it's deserved because it is amazing. It's called Heart Berries. Take a listen to this. <laughs> Therese, welcome to Livewire. I'm glad to be here. Um, you have a, a new memoir out called Heartberries. It is just beautiful and honest, and uh, it's getting great reviews. Congratulations on the book. Thank you. <laughs> Where did you uh, grow up, and, uh, and, and what was that like? I grew up 
on uh, the Seabird Island Indian Band, which is an Indian reservation in British Columbia, Canada. So it's right next to Bellingham, Washington, kind of in that on the other side of that border. And um, it was 600 members when I left, and it was just a really remote community. Um, did you sort of fixate on the wider world, like through TV and pop culture, or were you pretty focused on your immediate surroundings there? I mean, in order to escape the experience of, of living with that disparity of being an indigenous person, fighting against those statistics and, and those stigmas, I had to read, I had to watch TV. We had, um, what is it when you like rip off cable and you have all the channels? We had Bootleg that. it? Yeah, we were <laughs> bootlegging it. So I got like BT and I got, um, I would watch The Daily Show. I would watch, you know, I was just heavily invested in pop culture because it was such an escape, you know? When did you start writing and when did you have a sense that you really had a, a knack for it? My first day of school, I bound a book kind of by hand and with string, and I illustrated the story of a unicorn, and um, my mother was a social activist and kind of against the convention of school, so when the teacher told her, her like, oh, your child is gifted, um, she said, you know, school's just a choice, Therese. You don't have to please the teacher or impress them. Yeah. Wow, way to, way to get your back, Mom. I know, I know. <laughs> And I was like, no, listen, I mean, he's got a point. I'm smart. And uh, yeah, yeah. Was writing um, something that you sort of continued through your youth and that you, you know, used to explore the world and explore kind of how you were feeling about the world? Yeah, it was more to learn how to articulate myself for people who underestimated me. So it was more like, you know, if I went into the office to apply for, thank you, yeah. <laughs> Those are people who actually underestimated her. We've brought them in and that's their apology. Yeah. <laughs> apology not accepted. And you know, an apology can be a random act of kindness. You can think several years have transpired and that person probably doesn't remember, but I want to let them know I care. On the other hand, there is a sort of, it seems, a statute of limitations on, I'm being serious on apologizing. Okay. There is a kid that I was really mean to in middle school, and I have regretted it every day of my life, but if I apologize to him now, I feel like it's for me. Yeah. And oh, so, yeah. The self-congratulatory statement of you're a better person is not good. But if you genuinely are like, maybe you could low-key do it, like... Hey, how are you doing? Like I, I did Facebook message him. Yeah, it's like put the feelers out and I did. see if they're still traumatized by you. Yeah. I think he was because he did not respond. Yeah. Maybe you should send him a, like a I don't know an edible arrangement or something. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that your mom. Uh, sort of uh, was suspicious about uh, traditional education. You were kind of unschooled, I guess. That's the that's the, the nice way we describe it now. Like, were, your school attendance was kind of yeah. intermittent? No, I dropped out when I was 13, and then I tried to go back when I was in foster care at 16, and then, you know, instead of really committing to that, I got married young, had kids young, and was a welfare mom, and then at 24, I got my GED, and now I'm here. It really feels that quick, you know? Yeah. And, and speaking of something that you used to watch through the uh, bootlegged cable, The Daily Show, uh, you just found out that you're going to be on The Daily Show, like, next week? Yeah. 
So I knew for months that I was going to be on The Daily Show, um, but I knew today was the day that they would announce it. So for the, like since six in the morning, I've been hitting refresh on their homepage just so I could show everybody that I did a thing and that I'm going to do a thing. Yeah, it's crazy. It's right now it's just, you know, gloating on social media, but it'll be real when I'm up there. Yeah. I mean, having read your book and having been really moved by it and and just knowing at least parts of your life story and what you've been through, the idea that you got this book out now you're going to be on The Daily Show. I mean, it feels surreal to me, and I just met you. What does that feel like to you to be at this point in your life after all the stuff you've been through? I think it would be... It would, people would find it humorous that I would say, oh, the secret's real, you know? Like, oh, if you, if you actualize, you know, if you, if you say, you know what, I'm going to envision success, and I'll go ahead and chuck it in the universe. Like, you know, I had done that, only it was slightly different. I thought I would be on Charlie Rose, and then unfortunately, Charlie Rose turned out to be a horrible person. Yeah. yeah. So you had kind of, in your, like, trying to kind of um, believe it into being, you had, you had dreamed of a scenario where, and I presume it came by way of writing a book. Yeah. You would write a book, it would, it would be a, a sensation, you would end up on Charlie Rose. Yeah. You'd be talking about it. Well, you've, it's not Charlie Rose, it's The Daily Show, but it still, it seems to be working out as you had kind of dreamed. Yeah, I think people have to give themselves self-importance because there's this, um, there's this pressure to degrade yourself or you undervalue yourself and your work. And I think it's important to understand that what, what you have and the potential you have is solely your own. Did you always have a feeling like, yeah, this is what I'm going to be? I'm going to be... I'm going to be writing things and people are going to be reading those things and I'm going to be talking about it and I'm going to be, um, you know, I'm going to be heard. Did you always think that was, because having read about your life, I could see how you might have given up hope on that at some point. I honestly, I, I, I was okay if it didn't work out because at that point, you know, when I felt most discouraged, I felt like I had nothing to lose except hope and I was unprepared to give that up. Yeah, and I think, yeah, I believe in hope, you know? Yeah. Um, so you write in the book that you think self-esteem might be a white invention to further separate one person from another. What do you mean by that? I think when we talk about value, people are compelled to talk about their worth as if you can tally what a person is worth and what they deserve, and the interaction seems like capitalistic it seems like the exchange itself feels like a payment and a reciprocal thing and when we talk about even the idea of redeeming oneself you're talking about the value of a self and i think people are um people shouldn't feel inclined to quantify and qualify themselves in that way you know is a, a simpler way of saying it that if you don't have a ton of self-esteem that's okay is that kind of what your message is? I think, you know, I think for me, I come from a collective culture. So it's like my value is who I am as a human being is how I'm treating, for example, my brother. If, I, if he's okay, I'm okay. So like the value is not based in my um, CV, my resume, and my accomplishments as much as how I'm taking care of others and, and how I'm relating to the world. You know, it's, it's not something I can demand people treat me a certain way. I have to treat them well first. 
We need to take a very short break. This is Livewire Radio from PRI. We're at the Jack London Review this week. We are talking to Therese Marie Myatt. Her new book is Heart Berries. Back with more in just a moment. Livewire is supported in part by Fully. Have you ever noticed how kind of not great you feel after you sit at work all day? Truth of the matter is your chair is probably part of the problem. Most chairs and desks, they restrict movement, which leaves your body kind of achy. Now we'd like to tell you about Fully, designer and collector of standing desks, chairs, and other workspace tools that encourage you to move so you will feel better at the end of your day. Uh, I use a Fully TikTok stool when I am recording these messages, and it has really changed my whole kind of physicality. After a long day, and I know it doesn't sound like a real job, maybe because it isn't, but after a long day of recording things at my home studio, sitting on a TikTok stool, I feel great. I don't feel like I've been ossifying for the last eight hours. I feel like I'm ready to go take on my evening. Uh, so I can't recommend Fully highly enough. Get your body moving in your workspace like I've done. Go to fully.com backslash livewire. I don't know if we have to tell you that it's a backslash, but we're just going to err on the side of caution. That's fully.com backslash livewire. F-U-L-L-Y dot com backslash livewire. Fully. Desks, chairs, and things to keep you moving. Welcome back to Livewire from PRI. We're at the Jack London Review in Portland this week. We have Therese Marie Myatt here. Her new memoir is Heartberries. Um, in reading this book, there is a lot about uh, the experience of being a First Nations woman or Native American woman that the broader world does not get, particularly the white world. If you could, and I know it's a lot of things, but if you could try to explain for somebody who's listening to this radio show what is different about it and what it is that we have a hard time kind of grasping about the experience. I think it's a... It's one part a lack of information, and then it's when people find out about our history and our lineage as indigenous people, they have cognitive dissonance about how to interact with that. Um, so, for example, my grandmother was apprehended when she was a child and taken from her home and put into boarding school, um, which is a, something they did to indigenous people in America and Canada. So, and she was released when she was 18. And in those places, often they were not treated well. Um, they were abused and subjugated and exploited and sometimes sold. So, you know, when I relate that history of, you know, they would beat you if you spoke your language, they would beat you if you tried to pray how you grew up praying. Um, so when that, that link to your culture is severed, your identity and your psyche um, is damaged. And I think when you inform people, the onus is on them to empathize. Human empathy is good. I don't see the problem, you know? It's easier for them to distance themselves and say, well, it wasn't my ancestors personally. I'm not asking them to reconcile with the fact that they come from that history as much as I need them to understand that we deserve human empathy and decency and um, equal treatment, right? Um, in, in reading this book, it, it, it kind of discusses your adult life and also your childhood. And in reading it, I mean, I, I just felt worried for you. Um, 
what is the takeaway that, that you're hoping people have from your story? I think it's sometimes that vulnerability is a strength. I think it empowers other people to be emotionally vulnerable as well. So like people do worry for me when I am, I am capable of crying if I'm compelled to do so. And people aren't used to seeing that type of um, interaction with the world. But I think there's something so profoundly strong in somebody who's able to react in a way that's genuine and just brush away the posturing of having to appear as if you have it all together. You don't need to do that for me. Did it take you a while to get to that point? Like, did you, did you go through a lot of versions of yourself before you, you got to this version? Yeah, I was, I felt calloused by the way I had been treated. And I realized that it was only after I got out of what had damaged me so much that I felt hardened, I realized I could be soft again, you know? And it's like, now this is all an exercise in softness, how to be good to people and not be scared of people, you know, and realize that I have agency and autonomy and like, I just feel like good. Yeah. (laughs) I'm really glad to hear that. Yeah. Because at the end of the book, I didn't know if that was going to be. Well, it's for book two. (laughs) That's a fair point. Therese Marie Myatt, everybody, right here on Livewire. All right, Therese, uh, we here at Livewire, um, we want to get to know our guests in a very deep, very real way. Okay. Um, and so in front of you, I have an actual uh, physical jar. It's got five questions in it. Oh, gosh. Okay. These are the five questions that we think truly strip humanity down to its bare essentials. All right. They are the five questions of our age, and we call this the jar of truth. Here's how it works. You seem to already have a sense. You're reaching for the jar. <laughs> yeah. Therese, reach in, pick a question. I will read it to you, and then we would like you to answer it honestly. Okay. All right, she has reached into the jar. I cannot give you a preview. This is very official. I have to just present the question to you. What is a greater achievement, winning an Olympic gold medal or maintaining a pristine, totally empty email inbox? The inbox, without question. Yeah. Yeah. Especially... Especially when you, oh my God, that would feel so good. It feels so good to have nothing to answer for. And I don't need a gold medal. I don't need something. That's showy. I don't need, I don't like spandex or those leotards. I don't need any of that. What is the current condition of your email inbox? And I'll just start by saying, you can look at I have this computer with me on stage. Yeah. I'm going... Uh, right now, uh, 1,025 unopened emails. Yeah. So you're among friends. Yeah. No, it's, it's maybe more like, it's maybe the same, maybe 2,000. It's, it's a lot of, and it's solicitation, which is good. But after a certain point, you're just like, oh, I'm going to retire. You know, I'm just done. I don't want to do anything. Yeah. I will periodically... Uh, have a few drinks and then just delete my entire inbox. That's about no. every three years. <laughs> I just burn the thing down. Yeah. I feel like that's too reckless. I and it's like. getting harder to explain it because back in the day I could be like, oh, I lost my phone. 
and all the emails, but people know that that's not even a real thing anymore because of the cloud. No. And, you know, I'm really good about, people always send me this second email about, like, hey, just circling back, and I ignore that one, too. At what point do you respond? When do you know it's really getting serious? When they've deleted me on Facebook. (laughs) That seems like so much more work. Yeah, because then you can, you know, you can be like, oh, okay, that's solved, you know? Do you then email them, or do you just figure, well, now I don't have to worry about this? Well, I feel like they don't understand that I, I totally wanted to do the thing that they asked me about, or I wanted to, like, catch up with them, but I quite literally didn't have the time, you know? Is it, for me, when I don't respond, it's often because I don't want to give someone the wrong answer. Like, if they're, can you do this, or could you help me with this, and the answer is no, I don't want to deliver that news, You'd rather just ghost it, like all. Yeah. yeah, is that bad? I think that's bad, but I'm no better, so I don't. You know, I think it's fine to understand that, like, oh, with email correspondence, like, if you have a job, you also have a family, or you have like an investment like that, or you have a relationship, you also have your real life. Like, I feel like email should be the last thing, but because we have smartphones, it's like always present and overwhelming yeah so don't worry about the emails unless they're from the daily show yeah in that case definitely respond yeah i know if it's like trevor noah at dailyshow.com you're like definitely getting back to him yeah and if it's like somebody i grew up with i'm excited to i don't know talk to them but if it's like you know you know who's in your circle of interest you know yeah well, good. I feel actually better about my situation, too. Thank you for alleviating me of that guilt. <laughs> Therese Marie Myatt, thanks for being on LiveWire. LiveWire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Now, people may think Alaska Airlines only flies from cold to colder But with 1,200 daily flights and 118 destinations, Alaska Airlines is a gateway from the West Coast to the world. Learn more at alaskaairlines.com. Our next guest is a comedian who's been voted one of the funniest five comics in Portland by the Willamette Week. Please welcome Jason Traeger to Livewire. So good to be here. Thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful. I was number three, if you were wondering, in the uh, Funniest Five. Um, so much gratitude to be here tonight. What an incredible evening to be a part of, isn't it? I mean, yes. So, so much heart, so much warmth. I love it. Um, I've been taking in the gratitude lately. I've been seeing a therapist. That's been good. Yes, I am a white guy from Portland wearing glasses talking about his therapist on public radio. Uh, <laughs> I may not exceed your expectations, but I will meet them. That is my promise to you. (laughs) When looking for a therapist, I didn't have a strong idea of who I wanted to see. Man, woman, straight, gay, bi, trans, not important, as long as they're hot. I just wanted a a good-looking therapist. I mean, you're seeing a therapist, right? (laughs) You might say it's crazy. I think it's being a savvy consumer, personally. 
Wasn't concerned with cultural, ethnic orientation. I live in Southeast Portland where 10 out of 10 therapists are white Buddhists. That is just how it works out. The little water feature in the waiting room, bamboo. The garden with the sand and the rake, you've, you've seen that. I carry one of those on the bus with me, it's my laptop. It helps. <clears throat> Yeah, I didn't have too many criteria when I was looking for a therapist. Um, the one thing I did feel strongly about was I didn't want to see someone younger than me. I wanted to see someone with a few years on me. That's stupid, I know. I mean, kids are leading the world right now. Um, but uh, yeah. yes, yeah, let's hear it for the Parkland kids leading the world on gun control. I think I was just a little worried that they, they wouldn't understand the times they created me if I saw someone younger than me. And I wouldn't understand their cultural references. You know, like they do mutant ninja turtle therapy on me, tell me I have a Donatello complex. I don't know which one of the ninja turtles that was. I don't know what his characteristics were like. My therapist is older, um, a baby boomer, bit of a hippie vibe. Uh, I get the feeling he was a deadhead. Twice in session, he's used the phrase, not all who wander are lost. <laughs> to comfort me. I think we can all agree that's true at this point. Not all who wander are lost. Most are just experiencing a malfunction with Siri. <laughs> right? You're not lost if you don't know where you're going in the first place. You can't technically be lost. Yeah, my therapist, definitely a deadhead. He actually looks a little like Jerry Garcia. He looks like Jerry Garcia if he were alive today and had a court appearance this afternoon. <laughs> you picture that? Pleated khakis on Jerry. <clears throat> when we were getting acquainted with one another, he asked me if I had a spiritual practice of some kind, religious upbringing. I told him that I didn't, but that I had had many very profound experiences with psychedelics throughout my teens and 20s. 30s and 40s. Um, I'm not talking about partying. I'm talking about travel, ex exploration, um, spelunking. Uh, I'm not talking about playing the shaman's drum on the playa, right? I'm talking about sticking your head through the drum. Not microdosing, but macro, mega dose. Penetrating the membrane, rupturing the plane. You know, it's one thing to watch the spaceship fly by, it's another to be on board, actually in the ship, in the wall of the ship, embedded in that kind of information fudge that it's made of, and you're breathing in that substance. It's like a cheesecake-type solid substance made of language, and you're breathing that thing. It's like breathing in concrete, and you're thinking, well, this has to be death, right? You can't breathe a solid, I must be dying, but then the language saves you. The words come in and say, I'm the butter. You're the butter. Between us is the butter, right? Butter in all directions forever. You try and wrap your head around that. And I don't mean you try to understand it because that would be impossible, right? I mean, you physically attempt to wrap your head around that concept, and you do. You encase non-duality in a 
sphere of some kind, that thing just turning and you see it and you can't see over the horizon of it as it turns, right? That, that bending motion, it's like that, 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 that pull is like a bow being drawn back and somehow that bow of history maybe, bow of time, right? That tension is compassion. Somehow that tension is love. Okay, it doesn't matter if you understand exactly what I'm talking about. The point I'm trying to make is that my therapist understood exactly what I was talking about. He was right there with me. Okay? Thank you. Thank you very much. Jason Traeger, everybody. Thank you. Have a wonderful night. Jason, welcome to Livewire. So good to be here. Thank you so much for having me, Luke. How did you get into comedy? Um, through the desire to connect with other people in a meaningful way. Seriously? Yeah. It wasn't just that you saw an episode of Seinfeld and were like, I could do that. No, not at all. I mean, actually, it was seeing Mitch Hedberg on stage in Olympia in 1999. Yes. It would have been 50 this year. <clears throat> but seeing Mitch Hedberg in a little room in Olympia and going, that's amazing. This guy's really good. It makes it look so easy. Then I realized it's Mitch Hedberg. You know, it appears to me later. Did you, in the early days, were you writing a lot of Mitch Hedberg-esque? Well, actually, I just heard your set. It's not way different than something he'd talk about. He's a one-liner guy. It's though. formatted yeah. differently. Yeah. But, you're, I mean, you're talking about big ideas, I guess, as sure. he would. Sure, Yeah. No, he wasn't an influence stylistically so much. But just to get out there and do it, he was the one that I saw that, that really motivated me to get going. Uh, it, I'm hearing that you're also a visual artist and a musician. Yes. yes. When you've been to the places I've been, you've got to process it in a lot of different ways. <laughs> <laughs> it's very visual. Uh, it's also linguistic. <laughs> so you're a comedian, you're a musician, you're a visual artist. Yes. That's why no one's heard of me in any of those fields. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask you which one you're the best at, do you think? <laughs> Equally, yes, at all. Yep. It's... Uh, Blessing and a curse, folks. That's why I struggle to live in Portland. Do those all call upon the same part of your brain? Yeah, yeah I kind of switch gears. It's like a, um, a mode that I'll switch back and forth between. Yeah, but, but I'll try and do, like, uh, like tonight with the set I just did, there's visual painting in there, you know? And that's essentially, like, I'll see a painting in my mind and I'll describe it. Ugh. <laughs> I was following you. Okay, okay. Sometimes I hear myself talk and I think, oh, jeez. Like, how is writing a song and writing a joke different? Um, well, actually, I think about joke writing a lot in terms of songs, like rhythm to it, um, t you know, the tone, the structure. I'll, when I'm remembering a joke and when I'm writing it out, I'll think of it in terms of, like, little chunks, the way you might put a song together in chunks. What is the, other than being on Livewire, obviously, what has the best moment been for you being a comedian, and what has the uh, not best moment been? Well, the best moment, they're both hard, actually. Uh, the best moment, I remember coming off stage in Los Angeles once, doing a set in front of a nice audience at the UCB Theater, walking off stage, and Maria Bamford was standing there, and she gave me a hug and said, that was so great. And I was like, well, I'm done. Yeah. Retirement. You guys know Maria Bamford, of course. Yeah. So that was a high point. Yeah, she's definitely one of my people that I look at as, like, my favorites. Was there a point when you thought, yeah, maybe I'm not going to do this anymore? Yeah, every single day. 
<laughs> Pretty much. Well, don't Every afternoon and then don't don't five, I don't listen to that voice. Don't quit because you're hilarious and we're so happy you're on the show, Jason Traeger. Everybody, Thank you so much. Thank you. Are you a subscriber to the Livewire newsletter? What? You're not? Gasp. Oh my goodness. The newsletter is the best way to stay in the loop on our show, like when we're releasing new podcasts, uh, when we might be recording the show in a city near you. Plus, the newsletter includes awesome photos from our live recordings so you can see what we all looked like when we were making this radio show and podcast. If you would like to sign up, just click on the Stay Informed button on our website over there at livewireradio.org. It's Livewire Radio from PRI. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. Our next guest is the program director at the American Culinary Institute. Her name is Sophie Egan, and as you might imagine with that job title, uh, she thinks about food a lot. And one day, when she was thinking about food, she started to have some questions. Questions like, why does McDonald's have 107 items on its menu? That just feels like a lot. Uh, Or why is it that we will eat almost anything if they tell us that it is gluten-free? Or how did Taco Bell sell 1 million of those Doritos Tacos Locos? Do you remember those? Uh, Well, Sophie found out the answers. And she put them in this fascinating book that she put out. It's called Devour. Uh, And we caught up with Sophie on the stage at the Neptune Theater in Seattle back in December. Check this out. Sophie, welcome to Livewire. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Let's start right at the beginning. Why does McDonald's have 107 items on the menu? And did you have to personally go to a McDonald's to count? Yeah, I don't know why they have so many, but I do know that essentially the idea is that there must be something for everyone, right? We uh, live in a world of what's been called mass customization. So think about, for example, the sheer number of flavors of yogurt or Keurig capsules. It's the same idea that we want to please every single customer out there by having every single possible item we could come up with. Ironically, if you go to a restaurant and they make every kind of food, you know you're in a terrible restaurant. (laughs) Like their pizza and their prime rib and their wonton soup cannot all be good. That is a telltale sign. The the tome level menu, absolutely. Cheesecake Factory, sorry to throw you under the bus. Um, You talk about something called food values in the book. What what do you mean by food values? So there are the, the conscious values that some people might have about what they're looking for in food. You know, I care about animal welfare or I care about uh, local sourcing, right? But the book's really all about the subconscious values, what I describe as the American food psyche. So the three that I really discovered as being essential to the American food psyche are our work ethic, our value of individualism and independence, and our appreciation for progress and innovation. How do those things impact like the way we eat and like why we pick the food we pick so individualism this is one of the most stunning things i learned about in in the course of my book research which is that we're real outliers compared to other countries for how much we value independence this idea of myself as distinct and separate from others 
as opposed to interdependence, which is the idea of being part of a larger collective, more community-oriented. And so this, this idea that I want to be exceptional and stand out from the pack really leads us to customize and personalize our eating habits. Think of the four-adjective-long Frappuccino order at Starbucks, right? That is actually an act of intention. I got behind somebody ordering a coffee at Starbucks yesterday, and two hours later, they were still listing <laughs> specific modifications to the drink. Exactly. And that is really, whether we realize it or not, that is so uh, elemental. It, it, when we step up to that Starbucks counter, we're actually intentionally deviating from a prescribed box. It's like, I don't want the thing the guy behind me had. I want to be my own special snowflake. I want to stand out from the pack. And we're really trained to, to think this way from, from childhood. And now we see this playing out in the just proliferation of assembly line style fast casual restaurants. The, the build your own kind of chipotle of every cuisine. Is this the chefing thing that you talk about? Yes, absolutely. What is chefing? So chefing is a term that uh, actually was coined by a design thinker named Michael Berry. Uh, but really, this refers to the, the uh, practice of when you're kind of going through the assembly line at a Chipotle or a, a Blaze Pizza or a Name Your, name your Place, um, you are kind of pointing to the things that you want to dial up or dial down, right? It's like double the mayo, uh, skip, you know, hold the pickle. And research finds that actually just making eye contact with, with an employee on the other side of that counter makes you feel that the food is fresher, and you feel like this is really made for me, and the fact that you played a role in it, and that you chefed it, right? Like you're, you know, conducting the orchestra, um, and and really being a participant in the meal making, even though, of course, you know, you want it as fast as possible, you want to get in and out, and on to the other important things in your day, and and this is really um, come to be expected, and especially with things like mobile ordering, um, you know, online ordering, where you can really tailor and doctor to your own, you know hedonic needs, your allergies, your mood that day. And, and really, it's a sense of, as Americans, it's, it's my right to have it my way. This all got started actually by Burger King in the 1970s. Uh, of course, it was the furthest thing from having it your way, but it was like really radical to hold the pickle on your hamburger. We're talking to Sophie Egan. Uh, she's the author of the book Devoured, about the stuff we eat and why we tend to eat it. What do you think is the biggest change about how we eat now versus like 100 years ago? So there are two areas in particular, but one of the biggest changes uh, in the way we eat today is how much we eat by ourselves. So fully about half of our eating occasions are now alone. And this is, this is tied to actually a really alarming issue more broadly, which is just the rise of social isolation in the United States. You know, it used to be sort of um, socially unacceptable to eat by yourself. Um, but now, in particular with, again, enabled by smartphones, people seem to be eating more and more because they feel less alone. It's like, oh, no, I'm over here. I have company. I'm on my smartphone. Don't worry. I'm doing really important things. You know, checking in, posting a photo of my burrito. Um, you, you feel like you have company. I mean, company. those people's lives were not going to go on unless they saw a picture of your burrito you were eating. I mean, that made <laughs> someone's day. Oh, absolutely. And it, and it really is this kind of feedback loop of like, um, you know, again, the sense that you're dining with other people. But there's a true loss of, of commensality and commens conviviality, this kind of practice of eating with others that, as I mentioned, is tied to this much broader issue of social isolation. Uh, researchers from Duke have recently found that 
compared with a generation ago, people have uh, about a third of as many social ties as they did. And only about half of people have someone outside of their immediate family that they consider a confidant. So really, we're, we're out of practice at, uh, at, at interacting with other people. And food has become a really, uh, eating with others has become like a, a novelty. Is this why you're so pro-brunch? This is absolutely why I'm so pro-brunch. I just want to come out and say I am pro-brunch. Um, <laughs> you heard it, folks. A hot take from Sophie Egan, officially pro-brunch. I, I genuinely think that brunch can save our souls. Um, so what I mean... Let's not put too much pressure on brunch. Yeah, no, but brunch is up to the task. So what I mean is that during the week... So brunch is everything that weekday eating isn't. And by that I mean it's with other people. It's not in a package, it's not on the go, uh, and it's, it's all about the pursuit of a meal. During the week, we are so, the, one of the other main values I write about is work. And you know, today we outwork even ourselves, which compared to you know, a generation ago, we're working about 200 more hours. Like we're taking less vacation and stuff like that. We're taking that. less vacation than we have in 40 years. Uh, we work more, as I said, about 200 more hours than uh, a generation ago. And with all that work, you know, during the week, people, very few people actually eat breakfast. And if they do, it's kind of you know, tomahawking like a Pop-Tart at their spouse as they run out the door. Um, but brunch is, is, is the opposite of that. It's, it's all about uh, slowing down and savoring and you know, maybe kind of your bed head is like morphing into new shapes uh, as you kind of get the coffee going. But it's really, it's, it's about the food and it's about the people that you're going to enjoy it with. So I, I'm pro-brunch because in a lot of ways I think it's filling a void that many people uh, don't even necessarily realize is in their lives, this kind of socially starving and the other big part of it is, I describe it as secular church. So as especially among my, my generation, the millennial generation, there's been a real rise in the percent of people who are not affiliated with any religion. So brunch is, is serving as a kind of church or a gathering place, a, a, a ritual, uh, again, sort of slowing down, uh, marking the passing of time, breaking bread with other people. Uh, and, and for now, it's sort of the best we've got as an antidote to weekday eating. You're listening to Livewire from PRI. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. We're talking to Sophie Egan. Uh, we got to take a quick break, but we will be back in just a moment. Hey, special thanks this episode to Craig Cohen of Portland, Oregon, and also Tony Mendenhall of Portland, Oregon. I don't know if Craig and Tony know each other or bump into each other on the streets of Portland. I do know that they are such an important part of the Livewire community because they've generously supported Livewire with a donation each month, and we are so thankful for that support. That kind of stuff is genuinely how we were able to keep Livewire going. So a huge and a genuine thanks to Craig and Tony. Welcome back to Livewire from PRI. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. All right, let's pick up our interview with Sophie Egan. She's an author and program director at the American Culinary Institute. Are we enjoying food more? Like the food that we eat these days has more sugar and salt in it and fat. It has a lot of really appealing tastes that are in there that weren't in the food in as large quantities like on the prairie 
Like, is there any way to kind of like measure, are we, like it, when we're eating this food that's probably not great for us in a lot of cases, are we, is it at least more enjoyable in some way? No, I wouldn't say that we're enjoying food more than we were before. So I would say that- Because we're eating more of it than we used to. We are. So we, one of the other, the second major difference uh, in how we eat compared with, you know, maybe a generation ago is the amount of snacking. Um, so grazing is another way it's been described. It's this idea that you kind of, you know, eat a small amount throughout the day and that's somehow healthier. But in reality, we just add snacks to whatever meals we're going to eat. So in total, we're actually eating more uh, calories altogether. So the rise of the normalcy of snacking and the amount that we're eating, we're not actually enjoying it. We're not focused on it. In general, we have a sense, I think, a very utilitarian view of food. It's like food as fuel. And this is, there's no poster child for that idea more than Soylent. Like uh, in like Silicon Valley, they make right. this Soylent, which is just kind of basically a thing that keeps you nourished so you can keep coding. Ex exactly. So it's just... This, what a life. Yeah. Delicious. Uh, so it's a beige kind of meal replacement smoothie, um, and it apparently contains all the nutrients that you need to survive. And the premise is that eating is this awful chore, and that Soylent will, will spare you the trouble of having to think about food, go and obtain it, consume it, clean up after it. Uh, and, and while that's one extreme, I mean, we, see, we do see this in quite a few uh, other products, whether it's you know, protein bars, like other meal replacements. So if anything, I really think that we're, we're, losing, we're losing out on a lot of the, the, the freshness and deliciousness and the sheer variety of foods that, that could be enjoyed. Is this kind of a, a runaway train, the way that we eat uh, and, and now how our lives are oriented around that? I mean, are we just basically in the part of the movie Wall-E before Wall-E is just going around the planet, like cleaning things up? Like, and is there any stopping that? Well, I'm, I'm an eternal optimist, so I'm going to say no. Um, but, you know, so really the, the point of the book was I, was I set out to identify what unites us as eaters in America. And particularly with my book coming out in election year, I have to say that understanding what unites us as anything in America might be more worth understanding uh, than it's been in quite some time. And so one of the things that is really a strong theme of the book is that some of our greatest uh, strengths as Americans, while they may be some of our greatest weaknesses as eaters, a lot of these have two sides of the coin. So really there's a lot to be hopeful about. For example, how open-minded we are about, about welcoming new types of cuisines. I mean, two-thirds of Americans today are eating about um, you know, f five more types of global cuisines than they were just a couple of years ago. And we're really folding a lot into this melting pot and embracing new types of ingredients. Even meal kit companies, you know, Blue Apron, those types of, of, uh, of companies, I think are kind of providing the training wheels to get people back into the kitchen, appreciating real food, uh, starting to kind of fill in the gap of food literacy that a lot of us have lost. So I see a lot of signs, whether it's new formats, you know, food trucks, different types of um, kind of communal restaurants, you know, communal seating that really force people to um, eat shoulder to shoulder. I see a lot to be hopeful about. And, and really the book is, is sort of the, the, you know, a cautionary tale, but also um, reminder that, you know, we're not just fast food nation. We're about so much more. Um, as a, a person who works with the Culinary Institute of America, and you've written this book, you're extremely food woke. Um, is there something, 
terrible that you like to eat that you just cannot even defend? And don't, please don't say, like, peanut butter. I want a good answer to this. I really like uh, ice cream sandwiches, like super fresh out of the oven chocolate chip cookies with just That's still very artisanal, though. You made that. I'm talking like an ice cream sandwich that you found under the freezer at the (laughs) 7-Eleven. It's half melted, but you talk the guy down. Anything like that? I don't think that sounds safe. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have any bad food habits? I, I do. That, that one doesn't count. Well, No, if um, you home make, like with fresh chocolate chip cookies and ice cream sandwich, you're the right. barefoot Contessa at that point. You're not, <laughs> you're not me shame eating two Wendy's burgers with no bun because I'm on my low-carb okay, grind I'm, in a parking lot. <laughs> this is where I'm trying to get with you on this. All right, I'm going to try a second stab here. Um, Parmesan-flavored goldfish crackers? Okay, that's good. That's, we'll take it. Sophie Egan, everybody, the book is devoured. Thank you. That is Sophie Egan, right here on Livewire. Her new book is called Devour. It is fascinating. I highly recommend you check it out. All right, let's do this. Let's head back over to the Jack London Review in Portland, uh, because it's the perfect place to meet our musical guest this hour. The uh, Jack London, it's kind of this underground jazz speakeasy kind of vibe, and it's the kind of place that Reggie Houston knows his way around. Why? Well, because he's a seventh-generation New Orleanian, and he also spent 22 years as a member of Fats Domino's band. Uh, His latest project is called Anonymous Legends, A History of New Orleans Music, and he stopped by to play us a tune. Here's Reggie Houston on Livewire. Oh, winter song, but I miss you 
All right, that's going to do it for our show this week. Thanks to our guests, Therese Marie Myatt, Sophie Egan, Jason Traeger, and Reggie Houston. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines and fully hotel accommodations, generously provided by Provenance Hotels. Robin Tenenbaum is the executive producer and co-creator of Livewire. Laura Haddon is our senior producer. Melanie Sevchenko is our editor. And Caitlin Kunkel is our writer. Our house band is Jonathan Newsom, A. Walker Spring, and Ethan Fox Tucker. Molly Pettit is our technical director. Our house sound is by D. Neil Blake. Our on-air mix is by Jason Powers. Our development director is Lauren Masterson. And our operations manager is Tim Harkins. Additional funding provided by the Oregon Cultural Trust and the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire is made possible by the generous support of our members. This week, we want to thank member Chris Bright of Portland, Oregon, for his support. For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast or get our newsletter, head on over to LiveWireRadio.org. I'm Luke Burbank. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next week. Public Radio International. Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with, with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is... Uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review 
Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast.